welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. So today's episode, you're tuning in. You already know that this is the first time on the Learning Can't Wait podcast that we have a repeat guest. And that repeat guest is Dr. Denisha Murph, the Curriculum Coordinator, Language Assistance Program for MSD Wayne Township. Dr. Murph, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. When you asked me, I could not hesitate. I said yes right away. Well, and since we've been together, the last time we recorded an episode, which if you haven't checked it out, it was the first episode released uh, on this podcast and or one of the first episodes, excuse me, released on this podcast. Dr. Murph and I have started to follow each other on all sorts of, you know, networking websites. And so I've gotten a little glimpse at what the past, what is it, seven or eight months of your life have been like? Do you want to, do why don't you tell us what have, you told me you've been busy. What's, what's been going on since you were last on our, on our podcast? Well, lots of things. I have three children. They, of course, keep me really busy, but I love it because they grow up so fast. On the professional side, I've just continued to, you know, be open to learning and growing in my new position and be able to see across the district what things look like. I've been doing more consulting and doing things where I'm constantly focused on learning and growing because I always feel like you never arrive. And if I keep that mindset, I feel like I'll be learning and growing and be able to be, you know, being able to be fresh with new ideas because that's what it's all about. So that keeps me going. I think that's so important for a person in your role because you're not in a classroom anymore, right? So your experiences about pedagogy and practice are really different. So it's amazing to hear that you have invested and committed so much of your time to learning to better support teachers and ultimately students. That's incredible, Dr. Murph. Thank you. That's where the magic is. That's what makes me happy. Like being in a teaching and learning space, I feel like that's where everything takes shape. And if you stay a part of that, you really stay at the heart of the work. And it's what makes me happy. So speaking of the work, I mentioned your role at Metropolitan School District of Wayne Township in Indiana. I want to know, given that you have this bird's eye view position now, how you think this this year feels different than the past two plus years of pandemic teaching and learning? Mm -hmm. That is such a great question. I feel like this year we were able to move back into situations where our students were able to collaborate more. Over the years, we worked so hard to move students from that independent work all the time to collaborating and growing to really be a 21st century learner. Because we know the jobs that they're going to have in the future will require them to collaborate, to be a part of a team. Our students need to share. They need to be able to talk, have that discourse. And what I've seen this year more of, it happened before the pandemic, but the pandemic slowed it down. But now I'm seeing so many folks getting back into the routine of taking a step back and allowing the students to be an active part of that learning, letting them take charge of their learning, having agency, ownership of that learning. I've seen so much of that this year so far. 
can I tell you that my own child's kindergarten classroom last year, because of the pandemic, the kids were sitting in individual desks in kindergarten, which I understand and I appreciate my district's commitment to safety. But this year, they're back at community table. So they're sitting with three, four, five students together. And I, I think that that promotes that collaboration you're speaking of. And I'm sure that your district probably did some of the same physical collaboration and emotional and mental collaboration as well. Yes, that's it right there. I mean, to be able to see them having those, those discussions and talking, it was so refreshing. You could tell the kids enjoyed it. Now, there were some students we had to get them back into the routine of doing that because they had had to operate, you know, individually for so long. But we knew that once we created those parameters and set those norms and just gave them that, come on, guys, let's go. You got this. We want to hear what you have to say. They dived right into it. It's been a game changer for them. This notion of centering students in the learning in classrooms is a really big one. And I know that around the country, we see educators less sage on the stage, more like maestros and conductors of learning. Talk to me a little bit about how you know a teacher is less sage on the stage, more conductor when you walk into a building or a classroom. Like, what does it feel like to you as an observer? Well, it's so interesting you say that because when I first began as an administrator at the building level, there was something to be said about having that quiet, that, you know, that quiet in the hallway, that quiet in the classroom. And what we knew is that what the research tells you is that's not real learning. That's compliance learning. And so now when you walk in those spaces, you hear that buzz, that hum, you hear kids talking. What I found is when you see those parameters, I always call them parameters, but the group norms being set, children are having amazing discussions. The teacher is walking around listening to discussions, tapping into a talking point here or there. But she's she or he has set it up in such a way that they can move themselves back and they can hear what students are thinking. When we can hear what they're thinking, the process they're going to, that's how we take them to the next level in their learning. And that makes a world of difference. I distinctly recall that switch myself from you want a quiet, compliant classroom to the more noise, the better. Just make it productive noise. We're talking about the learning, we're digging into the content, we're getting each other's opinions. I like in my bones, I can feel what you're talking about. I haven't been in a school other than my own kids' schools in a very long time. So thanks for bringing that to light for me, for, to life for me and the listeners, Dr. Murph. That's great. You know, there are though still so many challenges, right? What challenges do you see most prominently in our in and around schools right now? Well, I think, you know, especially for schools that have used their ESSER dollars in a way to really impact student learning, that funding will end soon. And so what's concerning for me is that those additional dollars that were put in place, you couldn't change things in two years. Like you need more time. So for me, a great challenge is going to be the fact that that funding will go away. I would love to see that funding stay around for four or five years, because to me, that's when you really start to get into being able to see the fruits of your labor. You know, we had some students, their, their kindergarten year, 
that might have been their first year and then the pandemic hit. And then they went two years in some cases, not for us per se, but some kids went two years in a row without being back into a uh, in-person situation. Now we worked hard in our district to have virtual options for those that felt comfortable with that, but also to have as many in-person educational opportunities as possible. I really feel like that funding when it's taken away, it will have a huge impact on the work that was being done to help accelerate the learning for our students because they missed out on so much during that time. So I would love to see federal funding that will remain for at least four or five years. Wait, so let's talk about that, right? So you said there was work implemented. You're worried the funding will come out of the bottom and we won't be able to continue it. What accelerated learning opportunities did you witness or are you observing that have been really impactful in your district? Well, for us, we had reading interventionists that were strategically set at each building, several of them, to help students who were still struggling in the area of literacy. And then we also had additional teachers in the the, the department that I oversee that would help with our students that were English learners. There was something to be said about decreasing the number of students that were with one teacher at a time. Having those interventionists that came in on top of our Title I support, it made a huge difference. Now, we are seeing students making gains, but for me, I feel like that needed to be done continuously. We looked at ways to have more after school paying for transportation for after-school opportunities, helping our students, whether they were in kindergarten or at the high school level, to have additional learning experiences to help them catch up. You know, you think about what teachers were trying to do in the classroom, you need additional time. Some kids needed more time after school or before school, and those dollars were very strategically used in our district to make sure those opportunities were available. So I was really proud of that work, the thinking, the thought that went into using those dollars strategically. But I would love to see it be extended. Well, and and truth be told, I imagine that those interventions, which are really, and you said strategic, I think that's a great word for it. And I know that's what the research tells us really helps to accelerate learning. Um, But you're naming that these interventions are really working. You see the impact they're having. I would imagine, though, that two and a half years of interrupted schooling isn't erased by these in a short amount of time, which is why you're you're calling us to action to get some yes. federal dollars that are long lasting, because it's not going to be an eight month process to reverse the effects of social emotional impact and academic impact on our kids. Absolutely. You said it right there. And I think the longevity of having the the program, the additional funding, that's when we can see our students get where they need to be because we're looking at where they need to be for their particular grade level, but also what things they missed and how to bring those and catch them up in that area. And that's a lot of work, but we have to give our students that time to get where they need to be. And when we don't do that, I really feel like it's going to have a negative impact. So again, the dollars were great, but I want to see those dollars extended because our students deserve it. So that's obviously something that we want and we can't just like snap our fingers and and get. But I imagine that there are ways that you feel like your community has emerged stronger than before the pandemic. Right. So you you see many, many schools, many, many teachers, many, many students, many, many families What have you seen that is a bright spot for you in this pseudo post-pandemic period that we're in? I would really say something I've seen that has been powerful is that return to, we call it a morning meeting, for instance, but where we're taking time to check in with our students, 
Our students are checking in with us and each other, and we're really focused on building that community. We talk about social and emotional learning and we're thinking about how we want them to gain these skills because some kids were in isolation for so long. We had to bring them back together and they had to be able to social, you know, be social and interact effectively. Those are lifelong skills that they need to be successful adults. And I really feel like our district does a great job of ensuring that our students have the opportunities to develop those skills in a meaningful environment. It's not just, hey, let's check in, do a, you know, a, a little ticket to say what your temperature is. Are you green? Are you orange? Are you feeling yellow? So that, you know, whatever it might be, but they're having in-depth conversations and students are at the heart of that. And many times you will see students that can take charge of those discussions where again, that teacher can take a step back. I feel like when they have been able to do that in that space, it has built a stronger classroom community. And when you feel safe in the place where you're learning, you're going to learn at a higher level. When you feel safe in the place that you're learning, you're going to learn at a higher level. I just have to repeat that for a second because you would think it's a given. You would think that's a given, but it's not. And it requires conscious attention. And it requires differentiation and personalization because how one student feels safe isn't how all students feel safe. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when you think of a lot of the work that's been done with brain research, that has to be a part of it. And you start by letting people talk and communicate. Like You can't just come in the room and let's get down to business. And really in the classrooms that I'm seeing, that's not what you see when they walk in first thing in the morning. They are building community. They are building that family feel. Also helping kids know that everybody's not going to be quote unquote best friends in here, but we can learn how to treat each other with respect. The same things you want them to have again, as I said, as an, as adults, um, the classroom must be a safe space. The things we're asking children to learn now are way, way advanced compared to what I learned in the fourth grade or the fifth grade or the sixth grade. And to do that, your brain has to feel like, okay, I can be open to this learning. I don't have to be on guard the entire time. Like I can open up my mind to receive this. So that's a really big thing. I love that you're naming this. I am furiously trying to find the name. I, we spoke a little bit about how I was following you now on social media, places like Twitter and LinkedIn, where you post a lot about your learnings and what you're doing for your school and even your family, which is great. And I am, I like dabble. I dabble so lightly in TikTok and don't come trying to follow me because I don't do anything on TikTok, but I lurk on TikTok and there is this teacher on TikTok who is doing exactly what you're naming. She is explicitly teaching her students the social and emotional skills of being part of a community. So you named one that reminded me of her and I'm going to figure it out and I'll, I'll get to it in a second, but what her name is. She does a lesson. She does these very quick lessons. One of them is like, you're not going to like everybody in the classroom. That's okay. How do you act when there's somebody you don't like in your space that you are expected to relate with? Like, what are the types of things you can say and not say that make you still a good person while respecting your own boundaries? Like, you don't serve me. How do I interact with you in a way that doesn't deplete me, but also respects you? Which like, Absolutely. I love mm -hmm. that. 
I love because it again, like this goes back to something we spoke about the last time you were here and that you just mentioned. It requires explicit intentional thought. It can't just be something you drop into a lesson because you saw it in a curriculum. Right, right. And that is so true. And when we teach our young people these skills, they carry those. And with everything going on on social media, the things that they can access and things people say and do, we have to be intentional. Let them say the stuff that you see on a reality TV show. That is really not how you should act in public, in a public space. Um, The way you interact with the person sitting next to you, again, you may not be texting each other later on, but can you work together collaboratively for a common goal? And we have to be able to, you know, teach them how to live, how to work, how to play in a global society, because that is a very important life skill. It sure is. It sure is. I I know that there are some leaders in your own community at MSD Wayne Township that have been recognized for their prowess in doing exactly that. One is, and I hope I'm saying their name correctly, Tara Kokanauer, one of the 10 Indiana Teachers of the Year this past year, as well as Aretha Britton, the School Leader of the Year, Indiana Elementary Principal of the Year. Talk to us a little bit about these two folks from your community and like what makes them so great? Why were they recognized? And how proud is MSD Wayne Township that they are part of your community? Well, I don't know Tara personally, but I know that the process to be selected as a teacher of the year, like that is huge. I believe that people that I have known that have gone through the process is extensive. Like it is very extensive. You have to go through so many different things. You have to win in your particular district. Then you have to go to another committee. And there's a committee on top of that committee. And to be identified as a top teacher in our state is huge. I believe things I've heard about her is that she works hard with her students to build relationships. She has high expectations for them. She goes above and beyond to meet their needs. And I hope to be able to meet her one day. Um, Aretha Britton actually works in Wayne Township. I have known her for almost, well, actually 20 years now. It's been about 20 years. And I've seen the things that she does firsthand to create a positive learning environment. She is so strategic in supporting her staff, her students, and her families. She understands how those things all work together. And when she was mentioned as our um, District 7 uh, Principal of the Year, I was like, she is the epitome of what that would mean. She literally spends countless hours looking for ways to have a safe environment, a loving and nurturing environment, and a place where her teachers can learn and grow. She is what you would define as an instructional leader who is grounded in relationships. And I have learned so much from her looking at how she nurtures those relationships to get people to where they need to be. She understands the power of differentiating and personalizing professional learning for adults, which sometimes can be a very hard thing to do, but it's something she's intentional about. And she just brings a wealth of experience. And I learn so much every time I talk with her. You sound like two incredible teachers that your district is so fortunate to have serving students. That's incredible. I know, you know, you yourself were a school leader as well. And so you've collected your own tricks and strategies and practices and procedures to ensure that schools are places of love and safety and learning. What's one thing you miss about being in a school building, Dr. Murph? 
the kids, the daily interaction with little folks and big folks. And it's, it's just, I cannot underscore the power of those little people. I've always been K through six, but now I'm a, you know, K through 12, actually pre-K through 12. But to be with them, to see them learning and growing and becoming, you know, going from kindergartners to sixth graders. And then I can visit the high school now and see kids that I had in elementary school and to see the growth that they've made. There's something about the building that I I mean, it's even hard to describe, but I miss seeing my own little folks every single day. And that's why I'm very intentional in staying in buildings. They do. My former students love to see me when I come to the middle school or the high school. They're like, hey. And so now it's just a regular thing. You're back. I'm so happy to see you. And they can talk to me and share with me how things are going. And sometimes what they may need from me. But what I miss the most are the young people. There is nothing better than that role and being a part of so many lives. And the thing is, we think we're teaching them everything, but in all honesty, I've learned so much from the young, from the young people that I've been able to connect with and been blessed with over the years. I sort of think I was elementary too when I was in schools and then I did middle school when I was uh, an administrator. Actually, I taught in middle schools as well, but I sort of think that when my kids get older, because I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old now, I worry that I'm really going to miss that that elementary age child because there's just there's a spirit and there's an energy about this particular age that I just I, I don't know. It's going to be really hard, I think, when I don't have one in my home and I'm not with one on a regular basis in a building. Going to have to collect yeah. children in the neighborhood to hang out with. Yes, absolutely. Because I'll go to like a game or a football game and usually my kids will go the other direction because I'm stopping and saying hello to so many <laughs> young people. Like, hi, how you doing? They love to say, do you remember me? And I'll say, yes, you have the same eyes. And then some, I'm like, you look exactly the same. You're just seven inches taller. <laughs> but action is so awesome. And just to have been a part of their lives is something I do not take for granted at all. That's awesome. I can just picture the collection of folks around you when you when you go to a football game or go to a school. That sounds pretty amazing and speaks volumes to the impact you've had on so many people's lives, Dr. Murph. Thank you. Makes me happy. I bet. And speaking of impact, two years ago, we didn't talk about this explicitly the last time. We talked about cultural competency in schools, building it intentionally, but we didn't talk about your book. And you wrote a book and you shared your views, but I'm curious... Over the past year, a lot has happened. The public discourse has changed a little bit. What is your view on the ever-changing public tide of discourse around culturally responsive teaching practices? For me, I think people have tried to lump everything into just one basket. I had someone who wanted to debate me on how critical race theory is the same as culturally responsive practices. And I'm like, no, I've spent years of my life studying, implementing, developing. And like you said, I even wrote a book. It was the focus of my dissertation. 
those are not the same things. Now, if you want to lump things into categories and put an umbrella over things, that's up to you. You can, you can really make anything fit anything. But if you really know what culturally responsive practices are, you would know that that is not true. And so one thing for me that I've been really talking to people about is educate yourselves. Don't listen to sound bites, a paragraph of an article. Look at the people who actually coined the terms. Look at Dr. Gloria Lassen Billy. Look at Dr. Geneva Gay and the work that she's done. I mean, really think about the work that Zaretta Hammond has done to further that work. Look at Django Paris. Those folks have put their lives into this work. And if you actually read their work, it doesn't matter what someone else's article says. Look at the people who coined the terms and that will give you the knowledge that you need. And understand that as we do dive into this work, people are going to feel uncomfortable. There's nothing wrong with feeling uncomfortable. That means when you experience that discomfort, that you're learning and growing. Some of your mindsets are being challenged and you may have to think about why you think or believe the way you believe, how you were socialized. So it was really hard here, even in our state, as that debate was going on and they were just throwing terms in and everything just all went together. But luckily that did not pass for us. And we continue to do the work that we've been doing. And what we've seen is that our children are better for that work. We are doing culturally responsive practices in our classroom. So that every child can bring their lived experiences into the classroom and know that the funds of knowledge that they bring are valued and respected. So I want to name the book that you've written so that if folks listening are interested in reading one amongst the many you name texts, they're able to do so. It's called Culturally Responsive Pedagogy, Promising Practices for African-American Male Students. And it was published by Dr. Denisha Murph. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Of course. I think, listen, you, you worked really hard on that book. As you said, this is your life's work and this is something you're committed to. And it's important for folks to understand why so many are advocating on behalf of having culture responsive practices in schools rather than, you know, necessarily having it about political lines, but really understand the research behind it and the benefit it provides for students in schools. Absolutely. It's all about creating that space so that everyone gets the education they deserve. And it's powerful. And that work has been proven. Research has shown that it increases student learning outcomes. Right. And we want to rely on that research. We want to rely on the data sets versus anecdotal experiences, right? That, that allows us to, as a society, really move forward and follow what's best practice and what's best implementation for students everywhere. Yes, no, absolutely. I'm thinking about all of these topics we're talking about, right? On the heels of, again, two plus years of interrupted learning, trauma our students have faced. And we haven't at all talked about teachers, Dr. Murph. Like, what's your sense, given that you're around schools right now, of how teachers are doing in your community? I know you can't speak for the whole country, but you can speak for your corner of Indiana. And I'm curious how, it, how it's feeling right now. I think for our teachers, there's still a lot of work um, that's being done because when you talk about that great resignation, that has impacted the teaching profession tremendously. And our teachers here, they're doing a great job of looking for ways to fill in the gaps. And so our district has looked at ways to fill in the gap for them. 
Because if you're helping out the person next door because that position has not been filled, that eventually will weigh on you. I think for our district, we're talking a lot about wellness. How are you taking care of yourself? Making sure that teachers give themselves that permission. Because sometimes we go and go and go and go and go, and then you just feel that burnout mode. Having check-in points for them. Our district has worked with administrators at the building level just to be sure of what do you need? How can we best support you? I have been a part of some of those meetings on how can my department help at the building level with specific needs? What can we do? What insights can we share? And that has been huge. So they're not just left by themselves to figure it out. They know that they have a team of people at the district level that will come right alongside to assist in any way possible. Just making sure that we're mindful of what they said. We don't want to come in and take over. That's not what we're trying to do. But we want to come in and meet the need where you as a building have identified that need. So that's huge for teachers. I think, you know, in our district, we kept going. We kept providing services. When we came back in the fall of 2020, they started with in-person, but there were parameters set in place. So a lot of people have continued to keep going and going and going. And so we have to have check-in points. We have a wellness team that is assigned to every building. There's a rep assigned to each building because they're doing doing check-ins as well. We have supports put in place for staff who may need some additional assistance when they're struggling with some things that may be impacting them and it's having a toll on their emotional well-being. And so our district takes wellness very seriously, not just physical, but also mental well-being. So I hear something you're saying, which is funny because it is a perfect circle to the beginning of our conversation. One of the first questions I asked you was about how it's looking and feeling in schools. And you talked about collaboration and listening to students and centering students. And then I asked you just now about how the teachers are doing. And you said a similar thing. You said, we're talking to teachers, we're working with teachers, we're letting them share, we're listening to them. So good practice is just good practice, whether you're working with students or you're working with adults, right? It's about listening to others, working with others and not telling them what's best for other people, right? That's that's the best way in society is to, to let people drive their journey and to help them along with it. And I think I also want to give credit, you know, like when we think about that, I need to give credit to where credit is due. And our superintendent, Dr. Jeff Butts, he is about relationships. He is about relationships and taking care of the people that you lead. He models that behavior for his cabinet, for district administrators, for building administrators. I mean, in our district, That is something that he is known for. He cares about you as an individual. And that is where, to me, the rubber meets the road. It's not always about, let me look, let me check this, let me check that. He wants to check on you as a person. And so anything that he can do to make that easier, he is committed to that work. That's incredible. Dr. Dr. Butt sounds like he is really leading with the type of strong, compassionate, empathetic care for his team and the students that is needed to move districts forward. That's always love hearing about a leader that everyone or that folks admire and that brings, brings the community forward. So Dr. Murph, I don't want to end our conversation because as you could tell, I enjoy talking to you and learning from you and listening to you, but our time is, our time is coming to an end. So I'm going to close off with a final question, which is what is the most urgent matter before educators today? And educators is a broad term, right? It doesn't have to just be teachers. 
and how should we address it? So what is the most urgent matter before educators say and how should we address it? What immediately comes to mind is the level of respect for the position for the, for the position. I think that is an urgent need because when people are not fit, they don't feel respected, that takes a toll on their well-being. I really feel as though we need to continue to communicate. You know, at first when the pandemic hit, everybody loved teachers. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Like, I don't know how you do this all day. But as time went on, that same sentiment went out the door. Somebody needs to, I mean, can you imagine leading 26 people on a screen and trying to keep their attention with everything? And then when they return to school, okay, we've got to put some things into place to bring them together as a community. Teaching, you know, what I'll say is there's no greater profession to impact the world. That's how I feel. I've always wanted to be a teacher. That was from day one when I was little. But I feel that if the level of respect can be returned to the profession, we're going to see greater outcomes. I feel like people feel drained. They're constantly trying to figure out how best to serve young people. I know they go home and they take things that happen with them or to their students. They take it home with them. It's not a it's not a professional. You just cut it off when you walk out the door. And so I would love to see that respect to return. And I would love to see how we can continue to strengthen those partnerships between school and home. So I know that was a lot, but I really think that's so important. I love that. I could not agree with you more. This profession is amazing and challenging and important and undervalued all at once, all at once. So thank you for closing with that. I think that is a in a really vital way to talk about this profession. And I like that it's going to be on people's minds and thoughts because you just shared it. Thank you, Dr. Murph. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, to see you, to learn from you, hear from you. Thank you so much for joining the Learning Can't Wait podcast yet again. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. I love talking with you every time. I'm so glad you came back. I know we'll have you back again. So this is just a goodbye for now. And thank you to everybody who tuned into today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. This episode has been brought to you by itutor.com, your online solution for sourcing highly qualified educators. Join districts all around the nation that use iTutor to connect with thousands of licensed educators who fulfill both core and supplemental instructional needs. Choose iTutor.com. Online education when learning can't wait. Now back to this episode.